This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London, right now. Chapter 3. Wolf Larsen ceased swearing as suddenly as he had begun. He relighted his cigar and glanced around. His eyes chanced upon the cook. Well, Cookie, he began with a suaveness that was cold and of the temper of steel. Yes, sir, the cook eagerly interpolated with appeasing and apologetic servility. Don't you think you've stretched that neck of yours just about enough? It's unhealthy, you know. The mate's gone, so I can't afford to lose you, too. You must be very, very careful of your health, Cookie. Understand? His last word, in striking contrast with the smoothness of his previous utterance, snapped like the lash of a whip. The cook quailed under it. Yes, sir, was the meek reply as the offending head disappeared into the galley. 
At this sweeping rebuke, which the cook had only pointed, the rest of the crew became uninterested and fell to work at one task or another. A number of men, however, who were lounging about a companionway between the galley and hatch, and who did not seem to be sailors, continued talking in low tones with one another. These, I afterward learned, were the hunters, the men who shot the seals, and a very superior breed to common sailor folk. Johansson! Wolf Larsen called out. A sailor stepped forward obediently. Get your palm and needle and sew the beggar up. You'll find some old canvas in the sail locker. Make it do. What'll I put on his feet, sir? The man asked, after the customary aye aye, sir. We'll see to that, Wolf Larsen answered, and elevated his voice in a call of, Cookie! Thomas Mugridge popped out of his galley like a jack-in-the-box. Go below and fill a sack with coal. Any of you fellows got a Bible or a prayer book? Was the captain's next demand, this time of the hunters lounging about the companionway. They shook their heads, and someone made a jocular remark which I did not catch, but which raised a general laugh. Wolf Larsen made the same demand of the sailors. Bibles and prayer books seemed scarce articles, but one of the men volunteered to pursue the quest amongst the watch below, returning in a minute with the information that there was none. Captain shrugged his shoulders. Then we'll drop him over without any palavering. Unless our clerical-looking castaway has the burial service at sea by heart. By this time he had swung fully around and was facing me. You're a preacher, aren't you? He asked. The hunters, there were six of them, to a man turned and regarded me. I was painfully aware of my likeness to a scarecrow. A laugh went up at my appearance, a laugh that was not lessened or softened by the dead man stretched and grinning on the deck before us, a laugh that was as rough and harsh and frank as the sea itself, that arose out of coarse feelings and blunted sensibilities, from natures that knew neither courtesy nor gentleness. Wolf Larsen did not laugh, though his gray eyes lighted with a slight glint of amusement, and in that moment, having stepped forward quite close to him, I received my first impression of the man himself, of the man as apart from his body, and from the torrent of blasphemy I had heard him spew forth. The face, with large features and strong lines, of the square order, yet well filled out, was apparently massive at first sight. But again, as with the body, the massiveness seemed to vanish, and a conviction to grow of a tremendous and excessive mental or spiritual strength that lay behind, sleeping in the deeps of his being. The jaw, the chin, the brow rising to a goodly height and swelling heavily above the eyes, these, while strong in themselves, unusually strong, seemed to speak an immense vigor or virility of spirit that lay behind and beyond and out of sight. There was no sounding such a spirit, no measuring, no determining of meets and bounds, nor neatly classifying in some pigeonhole with others of similar type. The eyes, and it was my destiny to know them well, 
were large and handsome, wide apart as the true artists are wide, sheltering under a heavy brow and arched over by thick black eyebrows. The eyes themselves were of that baffling protean gray which is never twice the same, which runs through many shades and colorings like intershot silk in sunshine, which is gray, dark and light, and greenish gray, and sometimes of the clear azure of the deep sea. They were eyes that masked the soul with a thousand guises, and that sometimes opened at rare moments and allowed it to rush up as though it were about to fare forth nakedly into the world on some wonderful adventure. Eyes that could brood with the hopeless somberness of leaden skies, that could snap and crackle points of fire like those which sparkle from a whirling sword, that could grow chill as an arctic landscape and yet again, that could warm and soften and be all a dance with love lights, intense and masculine, luring and compelling, which at the same time fascinate and dominate women till they surrender in a gladness of joy and of relief and sacrifice. But to return, I told him that, unhappily for the burial service, I was not a preacher, when he sharply demanded, What do you do for a living? I confess I had never had such a question asked me before, nor had I ever canvassed it. I was quite taken aback, and before I could find myself, had sillily stammered, I, I am a gentleman. His lip curled in a swift sneer. I have worked, I do work, I cried impetuously, as though he were my judge and I required vindication, and at the same time, very much aware of my arrant idiocy in discussing the subject at all. For your living? There was something so imperative and masterful about him that I was quite beside myself, rattled, as Furiseth would have termed it, like a quaking child before a stern schoolmaster. Who feeds you? was his next question. I have an income, I answered stoutly, and could have bitten my tongue the next instant. All of which, you will pardon my observing, has nothing whatsoever to do with what I wish to see you about. But he disregarded my protest. Who earned it? Ah, I thought so, your father. You stand on dead man's legs. You've never had any of your own. You couldn't walk alone between two sunrises and hustle the meat for your belly for three meals. Let me see your hand. His tremendous dormant strength must have stirred swiftly and accurately, or I must have slept a moment, for before I knew it he had stepped two paces forward, gripped my right hand in his, and held it up for inspection. I tried to withdraw it, but his fingers tightened without visible effort till I thought mine would be crushed. It is hard to maintain one's dignity under such circumstances. I could not squirm or struggle like a schoolboy, nor could I attack such a creature who had but to twist my arm to break it. Nothing remained but to stand still and accept the indignity. I had time to notice that the pockets of the dead man had been emptied on the deck, 
and that his body and his grin had been wrapped from view in canvas, the folds of which the sailor Johansen was sewing together with coarse white twine, shoving the needle through with a leather contrivance fitted on the palm of his hand. Wolf Larsen dropped my hand with a flirt of disdain. Dead man's hands have kept it soft. Good for little else than dishwashing and scullion work. I wish to be put ashore, I said firmly, for I now had myself in control. I shall pay you whatever you judge your delay and trouble to be worth. He looked at me curiously, mockery shone in his eyes. I have a counter-proposal to make, and for the good of your soul. My mate's gone, and there'll be a lot of promotion. A sailor comes aft to take mate's place, cabin boy goes forward to take sailor's place, and you take the cabin boy's place. Sign the articles for the cruise, twenty dollars per month and found. Now, what do you say? Am I do? It's for your own soul's sake. It will be the making of you. You might learn in time to stand on your own legs and perhaps to toddle along a bit. But I took no notice. The sails of the vessel I had seen off to the southwest had grown larger and plainer. They were of the same schooner rig as the ghost, though the hull itself, I could see, was smaller. She was a pretty sight, leaping and flying toward us, and evidently bound to pass at close range. The wind had been momentarily increasing, and the sun, after a few angry gleams, had disappeared. The sea had turned a dull leaden gray and grown rougher, and was now tossing foaming whitecaps to the sky. We were traveling faster, and heeled farther over. Once in a gust, the rail dipped under the sea, and the decks on that side were for the moment awash with water that made a couple of the hunters hastily lift their feet. "'That vessel will soon be passing us,' I said after a moment's pause. "'As she is going in the opposite direction, she is very probably bound for San Francisco.' "'Very probably!' was Wolf Larsen's answer, as he turned partly away from me and cried out, Cookie! Oh, Cookie! The cockney popped out of the galley. Where's that boy? Tell him I want him. Yes, sir. And Thomas Mugridge fled swiftly aft and disappeared down another companionway near the wheel. A moment later he emerged. A heavy-set young fellow of eighteen or nineteen, with a glowering, villainous countenance, trailing at his heels. "'Here he is, sir,' the cook said. But Wolf Larsen ignored that worthy, turning at once to the cabin boy. "'What's your name, boy?' "'George Leach, sir,' came the sullen answer, and the boy's bearing showed clearly that he divined the reason for which he had been summoned. "'Not an Irish name.' The captain snapped sharply. O'Toole or McCarthy would suit your mug a damn sight better. Unless, very likely, there's an Irishman in your mother's woodpile. I saw the young fellow's hands clench at the insult, and the blood crawl scarlet up his neck. But let that go, Wolf Larsen continued. You may have very good reasons for forgetting your name. 
and I'll like you none the worse for it as long as you tow the mark. Telegraph Hill, of course, is your port of entry. It sticks out all over your mug. Tough as they make them and twice as nasty. I know the kind. Well, you can make up your mind to have it taken out of you on this craft, understand? Who shipped you, anyway? MacReady and Swanson. Sir! Wolf Larson thundered. MacReady and Swanson, sir, the boy corrected, his eyes burning with a bitter light. Who got the advance money? They did, sir. I thought as much. And damned glad you were to let them have it. Couldn't make yourself scarce too quick with several gentlemen you may have heard of looking for you. The boy metamorphosed into a savage on the instant. His body bunched together as though for a spring, and his face became as an infuriated beast's as he snarled, It's a... A what? Wolf Larsen asked, a peculiar softness in his voice, as though he were overwhelmingly curious to hear the unspoken word. The boy hesitated, then mastered his temper. Nothing, sir. I take it back. And you have shown me I was right. This with a gratified smile. How old are you? Just turned sixteen, sir. A lie. You'll never see eighteen again. Big for your age at that with muscles like a horse. Pack up your kit and go forward into the foxhole. You're a boat puller now. You're promoted, see? Without waiting for the boy's acceptance, the captain turned to the sailor who had just finished the gruesome task of sewing up the corpse. Johansson, do you know anything about navigation? No, sir. Well, never mind. You're a mate just the same. Get your traps aft into the mate's berth. Aye, aye, sir, was the cheery response as Johansson started forward. In the meantime, the erstwhile cabin boy had not moved. What are you waiting for? Wolf Larsen demanded. I didn't sign up for boat pullers, sir, was the reply. I signed for cabin boy, and I don't want no boat pulling in mine. Pack up and go forward. This time, Wolf Larsen's command was thrillingly imperative. The boy glowered sullenly, but refused to move. Then came another stirring of Wolf Larsen's tremendous strength. It was utterly unexpected, and it was over and done with between the ticks of two seconds. He had sprung fully six feet across the deck and driven his fist into the other's stomach. At the same moment, as though I had been struck myself, I felt a sickening shock in the pit of my stomach. I instanced this to show the sensitiveness of my nervous organization at the time, and how unused I was to spectacles of brutality. The cabin boy, and he weighed 165 at the very least, crumpled up. His body wrapped limply about the fist like a wet rag about a stick. He lifted into the air, described a short curve, and struck the deck alongside the corpse on his head and shoulders, where he lay and writhed about in agony. Well, Larson asked of me, have you made up your mind? I had glanced occasionally at the approaching schooner, and it was now almost abreast of us, and not more than a couple of hundred yards away, 
it was a very trim and neat little craft. I could see a large black number on one of its sails, and I had seen pictures of pilot boats. What vessel is that? I asked. The pilot boat, Lady Mine, Wolf Larsen answered grimly. Got rid of her pilots and running into San Francisco. She'll be there in five or six hours with this wind. Will you please signal it then, so that I may be put ashore? Sorry, but I've lost the signal book overboard, he remarked, and the group of hunters grinned. I debated a moment, looking him squarely in the eyes. I had seen the frightful treatment of the cabin boy, and knew that I should very probably receive the same, if not worse. As I say, I debated with myself, and then I did what I consider the bravest act of my life. I ran to the side, waving my arms and shouting, Lady mine, ahoy! Take me ashore! A thousand dollars if you take me ashore! I waited, watching two men who stood by the wheel, one of them steering. The other was lifting a megaphone to his lips. I did not turn my head, though I expected every moment a killing blow from the human brute behind me. At last, after what seemed centuries, unable longer to stand the strain, I looked around. He had not moved. He was standing in the same position, swaying easily to the roll of the ship and lighting a fresh cigar. What is the matter? Anything wrong? This was the cry from the lady mine. Yes! I shouted at the top of my lungs. Life or death! One thousand dollars if you take me ashore! Too much Frisco Tanglefoot for the health of my crew! Wolf Larson shouted after. This one? Indicating me with his thumb. Fancy sea serpents and monkeys just now! The man on the lady mine laughed back through the megaphone. The pilot boat plunged past. Give him hell for me! came a final cry, and the two men waved their arms in farewell. I leaned despairingly over the rail, watching the trim little schooner swiftly increasing the bleak sweep of ocean between us. And she would probably be in San Francisco in five or six hours. My head seemed bursting. There was an ache in my throat as though my heart were up in it. A curling wave struck the side and splashed salt spray on my lips. The wind puffed strongly, and the ghost heeled far over, burying her lee rail. I could hear the water rushing down upon the deck. When I turned around a moment later, I saw the cabin boy staggering to his feet. His face was ghastly white, twitching with suppressed pain. He looked very sick. Well, Leech, are you going for it? Wolf Larsen asked. Yes, sir, came the answer of the spirit cowed. And you? I was asked. I'll give you a thousand, I began, but was interrupted. Stow that. Are you going to take up your duties as cabin boy, or do I have to take you in hand? What was I to do? To be brutally beaten, to be killed perhaps, would not help my case. I looked steadily into the cruel gray eyes. They might have been granite for all the light and warmth of a human soul they contained. One may see the soul star in some men's eyes, but his were bleak and cold and gray as the sea itself. 
Well, yes, I said. Say, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I corrected. What is your name? Van Waden, sir. First name? Humphrey, sir. Humphrey Van Waden. Age? 35, sir. That'll do. Go to the cook and learn your duties. And thus it was that I passed into a state of involuntary servitude to Wolf Larsen. He was stronger than I, that was all. But it was very unreal at the time. It is no less unreal now that I look back upon it. It will always be to me a monstrous, inconceivable thing, a horrible nightmare. Hold on, don't go yet. I stopped obediently in my walk toward the gallery. Johansson, call all hands. Now that we've everything cleaned up, we'll have the funeral and get the decks cleared of useless lumber. While Johansson was summoning the watch below, a couple of sailors, under the captain's direction, laid the canvas-swathed corpse upon a hatchcock. On either side the deck, against the rail and bottoms up, were lashed a number of small boats. Several men picked up the hatch cover with its ghastly freight, carried it to the lee side, and rested it on the boats, the feet pointing overboard. To the feet was attached the sack of coal which the cook had fetched. I had always conceived a burial at sea to be a very solemn and awe-inspiring event, but I was quickly disillusioned by this burial at any rate. One of the hunters, a little dark-eyed man whom his mates called Smoke, was telling stories liberally intersprinkled with oaths and obscenities, and every minute or so the group of hunters gave mouth to a laughter that sounded to me like a wolf chorus or the barking of hellhounds. The sailors trooped noisily aft, some of the watch below rubbing the sleep from their eyes, and talked in low tones together. There was an ominous and worried expression on their faces. It was evident that they did not like the outlook of a voyage under such a captain and begun so inauspiciously. From time to time they stole glances at Wolf Larsen, and I could see that they were apprehensive of the man. He stepped up to the hatch cover, and all caps came off. I ran my eyes over them. Twenty men, all told. Twenty-two, including the man at the wheel and myself. I was pardonably curious in my survey, for it appeared my fate to be pent up with them on this miniature floating world for I knew not how many weeks or months. The sailors, in the main, were English and Scandinavian, and their faces seemed of the heavy, stolid order. The hunters, on the other hand, had stronger and more diversified faces, with hard lines and the marks of the free play of passions. Strange to say, and I noted it all once, Wolf Larsen's features showed no such evil stamp. There seemed nothing vicious in them. True, there were lines, but they were the lines of decision and firmness. It seemed rather a frank and open countenance, which frankness or openness was enhanced by the fact that he was smooth-shaven. I could hardly believe, until the next incident occurred, 
that it was the face of a man who could behave as he had behaved to the cabin boy. At this moment, as he opened his mouth to speak, puff after puff struck the schooner and pressed her side under. The wind shrieked a wild song through the rigging. Some of the hunters glanced anxiously aloft. The lee rail, where the dead man lay, was buried in the sea, and as the schooner lifted and righted, the water swept across the deck, wetting us above our shoe-tops. A shower of rain drove down upon us, each drop stinging like a hailstorm. As it passed, Wolf Larsen began to speak the bareheaded men swaying in unison to the heave and lunge of the deck. I only remember one part of the service, he said, and that is, and the body shall be cast into the sea. So cast it in. He ceased speaking. The men holding the hatch cover seemed perplexed, puzzled no doubt by the briefness of the ceremony. He burst upon them in a fury. Lift up that end there, damn you! What the hell's the matter with you? They elevated the end of the hatch cover with pitiful haste, and like a dog flung overside, the dead man slid feet first into the sea. The coal at his feet dragged him down. He was gone. Johansson, Wolf Larsen said briskly to the new mate, keep all hands on deck now they're here. Get in the topsails and jibs and make a good job of it. We're in for our Easter. Better reef the jib and mainsail, too, while you're about it. In a moment, the decks were in commotion, Johansson bellowing orders and the men pulling or letting go ropes of various sorts, all naturally confusing to a landsman such as myself. But it was the heartlessness of it that especially struck the dead man was an episode that was past, an incident that was dropped in a canvas covering with a sack of coal, while the ship sped along and her work went on. Nobody had been affected. The hunters were laughing at a fresh story of smokes, the men pulling and hauling, and two of them climbing aloft. Wolf Larsen was studying the clouding sky to windward, and the dead man, dying obscenely, buried sordidly, and sinking down, down. Then it was that the cruelty of the sea, its relentlessness and awfulness, rushed upon me. Life had become cheap and tawdry, a beastly and inarticulate thing, a soulless stirring of the ooze and slime. I held on to the weather rail, close by the shrouds, and gazed out across the desolate foaming waves to the low-lying fog banks that hid San Francisco and the California coast. Rain squalls were driving in between, and I could scarcely see the fog. And this strange vessel, with its terrible men, pressed under by wind and sea, and ever leaping up and out, was heading away into the southwest, into the great and lonely Pacific expanse. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 What happened to me next on the sealing schooner ghost, as I strove to fit into my new environment, are matters of humiliation and pain. The cook, 
who was called the doctor by the crew, Tommy by the hunters, and Cookie by Wolf Larsen, was a changed person. The difference worked in my status, brought about a corresponding difference in treatment from him. Servile and fawning as he had been before, he was now as domineering and bellicose. In truth, I was no longer the fine gentleman with a skin soft as a lady's, but only an ordinary and very worthless cabin boy. He absurdly insisted upon my addressing him as Mr. Mugridge, and his behavior and carriage were insufferable as he showed me my duties. Besides my work in the cabin, with its four small staterooms, I was supposed to be his assistant in the galley, and my colossal ignorance concerning such things as peeling potatoes or washing greasy pots was a source of unending and sarcastic wonder to him. He refused to take into consideration what I was, or rather what my life and the things I was accustomed to had been. This was part of the attitude he chose to adopt toward me, and I confess, ere the day was done, that I hated him with more lively feelings than I had ever hated anyone in my life before. This first day was made more difficult for me from the fact that the ghost, under close reefs, terms such as these I did not learn till later, was plunging through what Mr. Muggeridge called an owl and sow-easter. At half-past five, under his direction, I set the table in the cabin with rough weather trays in place, and then carried the tea and cooked food down from the galley. In this connection, I cannot forbear relating my first experience with a boarding sea. Look sharp, or you'll get doused was Mr. Mugridge's parting injunction as I left the galley with a big teapot in one hand and in the hollow of the other arm several loaves of fresh-baked bread. One of the hunters, a tall, loose-jointed chap named Henderson, was going aft at the time from the steerage, the name the hunters facetiously gave their midships sleeping quarters, to the cabin. Wolf Larsen was on the poop, smoking his everlasting cigar. "'Here she comes! Sling your rook!' the cook cried. I stopped, for I did not know what was coming, and saw the galley door slide shut with a bang. Then I saw Henderson leaping like a madman for the main rigging, up which he shot on the inside till he was many feet higher than my head. Also I saw a great wave, curling and foaming, poised far above the rail. I was directly under it. My mind did not work quickly, everything was so new and strange. I grasped that I was in danger, but that was all. I stood still in trepidation. Then Wolf Larsen shouted from the poop, Grab hold of something, you... you hump! But it was too late. I sprang toward the rigging, to which I might have clung, and was met by the descending wall of water. What happened after that was very confusing. I was beneath the water, suffocating and drowning. My feet were out from under me, and I was turning over and over, and being swept along I knew not where. Several times I collided against hard objects, once striking my right knee a terrible blow. 
Then the flood seemed suddenly to subside, and I was breathing the good air again. I had been swept against the galley and around the steerage companionway, from the weather side to the lee scuppers. The pain from my hurt knee was agonizing. I could not put my weight on it, or at least I thought I could not put my weight on it, and I felt sure the leg was broken. But the cook was after me, shouting through the lee galley door, Here, you, don't talk all night about it. Where's the pot? Lost overboard? Serve you bloody well right if your neck was broke. I managed to struggle to my feet. The great teapot was still in my hand. I limped to the galley and handed it to him. But he was consumed with indignation, real or feigned. God bloy me if you ain't a slob. What are you good for anyway, I'd like to know. Eh? What are you good for anyway? Can't even carry a bit of tea aft without losing it. Now I'll have to boil some more. And what are you sniffling about? He burst out at me with renewed rage. Cause you've hurt your poor little leg, poor little mama's darling. I was not sniffling, though my face might well have been drawn and twitching from the pain. But I called up all my resolution, set my teeth, and hobbled back and forth from galley to cabin and cabin to galley without further mishap. Two things I had acquired by my accident. An injured kneecap that went undressed and from which I suffered for weary months, and the name of Hump, which Wolf Larsen had called me from the poop. Thereafter, fore and aft, I was known by no other name until the term became a part of my thought processes and I identified it with myself. Thought of myself this hump, as though hump were I and had always been I. It was no easy task waiting on the cabin table where sat Wolf Larsen, Johansen, and the six hunters. The cabin was small to begin with, and to move around as I was compelled to was not made easier by the schooner's violent pitching and wallowing. But what struck me most forcibly was the total lack of sympathy on the part of the men whom I served. I could feel my knee through my clothes swelling and swelling, and I was sick and faint from the pain of it. I could catch glimpses of my face, white and ghastly, distorted with pain, in the cabin mirror. All the men must have seen my condition, but not one spoke or took notice of me till I was almost grateful to Wilf Larsen later on, I was washing the dishes, when he said, Don't let a little thing like that bother you. You'll get used to such things in time. It may cripple you some, but all the same, you'll be learning to walk. That's what you call a paradox, isn't it? He added. He seemed pleased when I nodded my head with the customary, Yes, sir. I suppose you know a bit about literary things, huh? Good. I'll have some talks with you sometime. And then, taking no further account of me, he turned his back and went up on deck. That night, when I had finished an endless amount of work, I was sent to sleep in the steerage where I made up a spare bunk. I was glad to get out of the detestable presence of the cook and to be off my feet. To my surprise, my clothes had dried on me and there seemed no indications of catching cold either from the last soaking or from the prolonged soaking from the foundering of the Martinez. 
Under ordinary circumstances, after all that I had undergone, I should have been fit for bed and a trained nurse. But my knee was bothering me terribly. As well as I could make out, the kneecap seemed turned up on edge in the midst of the swelling. As I sat in my bunk examining it, the six hunters were all in steerage, smoking and talking in loud voices. Henderson took a passing glance at it. Looks nasty, he commented. Tie a rag around it and it'll be all right. That was all. And on the land, I would have been lying on the broad of my back with a surgeon attending on me, and with strict injunctions to do nothing but rest. But I must do these men justice. Callous as they were to my suffering, they were equally callous to their own when anything befell them. And this was due, I believe, first to habit, and second, to the fact that they were less sensitively organized. I really believe that a finely organized, high-strung man would suffer twice and thrice as much as they from a like injury. Tired as I was, exhausted in fact, I was prevented from sleeping by the pain in my knee. It was all I could do to keep from groaning aloud. At home, I should undoubtedly have given vent to my anguish. But this new and elemental environment seemed to call for a savage repression. Like the savage, the attitude of these men was stoical in great things, childish in little things. I remember, later in the voyage, seeing Kerfoot, another of the hunters, lose a finger by having it smashed to a jelly, and he did not even murmur or change the expression on his face. Yet. I have seen this same man, time and again, fly into the most outrageous passion over a trifle. He was doing it now, vociferating, bellowing, waving his arms, and cursing like a fiend, and all because of a disagreement with another hunter as to whether a seal pup knew instinctively how to swim. He held that it did, that it could swim the moment it was born. The other hunter, Latimer, a lean, Yankee-looking fellow with shrewd, narrow-slitted eyes, held otherwise, held that the seal pup was born on the land for no other reason than it could not swim, that its mother was compelled to teach it to swim as birds were compelled to teach their nestlings how to fly. For the most part, the remaining four hunters leaned on the table or lay in their bunks and left the discussion to the two antagonists. But they were supremely interested, for every little while they ardently took sides, and sometimes all were talking at once, till their voices surged back and forth in waves of sound like mimic thunder rolls in the confined space. Childish and immaterial as the topic was, the quality of their reasoning was still more childish and immaterial. In truth, there was very little reasoning, or none at all. Their method was one of assertion, assumption, and denunciation. They proved that a seal pup could swim or not swim at birth by stating the proposition very bellicosely, and then following it up with an attack on the opposing man's judgment, common sense, nationality, or past history. Rebuttal was precisely similar. 
I have related this in order to show the mental caliber of the men with whom I was thrown in contact. Intellectually, they were children inhabiting the physical forms of men. And they smoked, incessantly smoked, using a coarse, cheap, and offensive-smelling tobacco. The air was thick and murky with the smoke of it. And this, combined with the violent movement of the ship as she struggled through the storm, would surely have made me seasick had I been a victim to that malady. As it was, it made me quite squeamish, though this nausea might have been due to the pain of my leg and exhaustion. As I lay there thinking, I naturally dwelt upon myself and my situation. It was unparalleled, undreamed of, that I, Humphrey Van Waden, a scholar and a dilettante, if you please, in things artistic and literary, should be lying here on a Bering Sea seal-hunting schooner. Cabin boy! I had never done any hard manual labor or scullion labor in my life. I had lived a placid, uneventful, sedentary existence all my days the life of a scholar and a recluse on an assured and comfortable income. Violent life and athletic sports had never appealed to me. I had always been a bookworm. So my sisters and father had called me during my childhood. I had gone camping but once in my life, and then I left the party almost at its start and returned to the comforts and conveniences of a roof. And here I was, with dreary and endless vistas before me of table setting, potato peeling, and dishwashing. And I was not strong. The doctors had always said that I had a remarkable constitution, but I had never developed it or my body through exercise. My muscles were small and soft like a woman's, or so the doctors had said time and again, in the course of their attempts to persuade me to go in for physical culture fads. But I had preferred to use my head rather than my body, and here I was in no fit condition for the rough life in prospect. These are merely a few of the things that went through my mind and are related for the sake of vindicating myself in advance in the weak and helpless role I was destined to play. But I thought also of my mother and sisters, and pictured their grief. I was among the missing dead of the Martinez disaster, an unrecovered body. I could see the headlines in the papers. The fellows at the university club and the Bibblet shaking their heads and saying, Poor chap. And I could see Charlie Furiseth, as I had said goodbye to him that morning, lounging in a dressing gown on the bepillowed window couch, and delivering himself of oracular and pessimistic epigrams. And all the while, rolling, plunging, climbing the moving mountains, and following and wallowing in the foaming valleys, this schooner ghost was fighting her way farther and farther into the heart of the Pacific, and I was on her. I could hear the wind above. It came to my ears as a muffled roar. Now and again, feet stamped overhead. An endless creaking was going on all about me, 
the woodwork and the fittings groaning and squeaking and complaining in a thousand keys. The hunters were still arguing and roaring like some semi-human amphibious breed. The air was filled with oaths and indecent expressions. I could see their faces flushed and angry, the brutality distorted and emphasized by the sickly yellow of the sea lamps which rocked back and forth with the ship. Through the dim smoke haze, the bunks looked like the sleeping dens of animals in a menagerie. Oilskins and sea boots were hanging from the walls, and here and there rifles and shotguns rested securely in the racks. It was a sea fitting for the buccaneers and pirates of bygone years. My imagination ran riot, and still I could not sleep. And it was a long, long night, weary and dreary and long. End of chapter 4